be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. As I've outlined this book where uh, you may be uh, dismayed or, or, or thrilled to hear we are about halfway done uh, with our study of the book of Colossians. I think somewhere around, uh, believe it or not, 28 sermons is, is what we're shooting for. I think this is sermon number 14 or 15. So hopefully uh, you're doing okay so far in Colossians. It has been a great feast for my own soul. Uh, I'm sorry I'm going so quickly through the book, um, but uh, there are other books we need to get to, I trust. So here we are in Colossians chapter 2, and some glorious truths this morning, uh, beginning in verse 11. Colossians 2 and verse 11, hear now the word of God. In him also were you circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, in which we can now set our hearts upon, our minds upon, we pray, that you would guide and lead us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The University College of London, uh, when its board of directors meets for special meetings, uh, among those meeting, among the board, there is one uh, who seems a bit out of fashion. That is, everyone comes dressed in formal attire, suit and tie and all the rest, but there's one who seems to be a bit outdated in the clothing that he is wearing. He is uh, Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham. Uh, the, his lack of contemporary dress probably has something to do with the fact that he died in 1832. You see, Jeremy Bentham, though dead, still faithfully attends the board meetings at the University College of London. That name might be familiar to you. Jeremy Bentham was the founder of a philosophical tradition called utilitarianism and he left his entire fortune to the University College of London on one condition, that his body would be preserved, and that at special uh, meetings of the board of directors, his remains would be dressed in a formal suit, and he would be seated at the boardroom table. Sadly, his head is no longer attached to his body. <laughs> so so a, wax, a wax head now sits upon his physical remains, as he attends the meeting, his head uh, remains in the cabinet nearby. And for 180 years or so, his corpse is seated at the table. As the chairman begins the meeting, he declares, Jeremy Bentham, present, but not voting. <laughs> he's there, but he's contributing nothing. Though present, he is dead. Kind of like you at least at one point in your life, kind of like me. What does Paul say here in verse 13? And you, who were dead in trespasses. This, uh, that is what Paul's saying with respect to the things of God, respect to the gospel, respect to obedience, with respect to his glory. You were present, but you were contributing nothing. Paul, as you know here in Colossians 2, is seeking to counter these false teachers who seem to be offering some type of spiritual experience outside of Christ. And so Paul is continually reminding us that we have everything we need 
in Christ. And he will do so once again in verses 11 through verse 15. You could take verses 11 through verse 15, divide it into two. Two halves, verses 11 through 13, at least the first half of verse 13, is largely about what Christ has done in us. And then you pick up in the middle of verse 13, go all the way through verse 15, and that's largely about what Christ has done for us. And so you have the first half dealing with our subjective experience of Christ's work of the gospel, and the second half of this passage dealing with the objective experience of the gospel. But what you will note is it's all about Christ. It's all about our union with Christ. And so this morning we're going to just consider the first half of this passage, verses 11 through 13, what has Christ done in us? And we will see in verse 11 that we are circumcised in Christ. In verse 12, we're buried with Christ. In verse 13, excuse me, verse 12 again, we're raised with Christ. We'll find out in verse 13 we've been made alive with Christ. You see, once again, Paul is continually reminding us of our union with Jesus. And so as we this morning consider Christ's work in us, we'll do so in three steps. That, first of all, our, that we've been circumcised. Secondly, we've been buried. And thirdly, we've been raised. I think what you'll find is all three of those ideas of God's working in us are interrelated. So there'll be some degree of overlap between these three principles, these metaphors that the Bible draws out. And then you'll note that Paul does, in particular, reference baptism. And so we're going to, at the end, flesh out some of the symbolism of baptism. So we begin by considering this morning that we have been circumcised by Christ. What Paul tells us here in verse 11, you'll note, in him you were also circumcised. In him you were also circumcised. It's somewhat surprising uh, if you were just reading along in the letter because it seems out of, that is, it's out of nowhere Paul starts talking about circumcision. And uh, of course we're not really sure why he brings this up. Once again, our best guess is that this has something to do with the false teachers. Now I've, I've already shared in previous sermons, Paul never lays out what the false teachers are saying. So Colossians 2 is, is a bit like Jeopardy. Right? Paul's given the answers, and we need to guess the question. Right? What's the problem to which Paul is answering? We do know that Paul continually refers, uses this term fullness. You see that a number of times in Colossians. Fullness, fullness, fullness. And, 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 and so we, many people have suggested what these false teachers are teaching is that they're coming to these Colossian Christians and saying, well, what you have in Christ is all very well and good. And, and, and good for you that you've united yourself to Jesus by faith. But if you want fullness, you want the fullness of what God wants for you, uh, you, need to go, you want to go beyond the normal Christian experience, well, we have the key for you. We have the keys that unlock fullness found in this religious experience. And evidently, it seems that one of those keys was circumcision. That you need to be circumcised. We'll find out in verses 16 through 17 that they are very much emphasizing the, the old Mosaic legal code. And so this is perhaps why Paul brings up uh, this idea of circumcision. And, and, and he writes to these Gentile Christians, this church is largely Gentile, he says, you were circumcised. So he says, you were circumcised. Now, it, it might be helpful just to remember what circumcision is about. What's the purpose of circumcision? We find it first introduced to us in Genesis 17 as a sign of the covenant uh, given to Abraham. And so, so like the wedding ring that I wear on my finger is a sign that I am in covenant with uh, Allegra, right? So circumcision was a sign that Abraham was in covenant with God. 
And God is always giving signs to his covenant. So like you, you remember the Noah's covenant. What's the, the sign of Noah's covenant was what? It's a rainbow, right? It's a beautiful bow in the sky. Some suggest the sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath, right? And so God's giving signs, and so circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you perhaps, if you put yourself in Abraham's position, he, he might have wanted a different sign, okay? Um, right? Can't I get a twinkling star or a day off as a sign of my covenant? And God says, nope. If you want to be in this covenant, you need to perform to be quite honest, a minor surgery on your, on your private parts, okay? And it's very, very strange, I think, uh, if it weren't so familiar to us. I mean, I, could you imagine God saying, if you want to be in a relationship with me, you have to go out back, take out a knife, and cut off your foreskin. I mean, that is a stunning request, isn't it? And so, of course, the question is, why? What is going on here? This is very strange. Why circumcision? Why not, why not have your ear pierced? Why not, why not wear a piece of jewelry? Why, why not uh, some other sign? Why this? Well, it's interesting. God never tells us. We're never told. Um, but I, we, we can speculate, I think, a little bit here, that especially if you read the book of Genesis, very, very clear, as we've been studying uh, before COVID hit, that this particular part of the male body, if it is not devoted to God, Things go really, really badly. You see that over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. That we can do great evil with this part of the body. We can do great good with it. We can be united with our wife. We could, we could create life like God creates life. And so God, in some sense, says to, to be in covenant with me, I'm going to start with the men, and I'm going to start where those men are at times most prone to sin. I'm going to brand them. So whenever they look at themselves, they recognize you belong to me. And by the first century, the circumcision has become the identity of the Jewish people. You even read this in the New Testament. The Jew and circumcised is used synonymously. The, they're called the circumcised. And, and, and Gentile, uh, in shorthand for Gentile, is uncircumcised. And now you have these uncircumcised Gentiles believing in a Jewish Messiah. And the question that comes up in Colossians and many other places in the New Testament, as you know, is what do we do with circumcision then? And Paul says of these Gentile believers, you were circumcised. Of course, we might say, well, in what sense? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? You see there in verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Circumcision made without hands. In other words, a circumcision done by God. In fact, you, what's the very first two words in verse 11? In him. That is, in Christ you were circumcised. He ends verse 11 saying, by the circumcision of Christ. And so this is referring to a deeper internal circumcision that has been performed. So we read in Deuteronomy 10, for instance, God said, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Of course, they had no ability to do that. We can't do that. It's not in our ability to actually change our hearts. That has to be done by Christ. And so Paul takes up this concept claiming that, that you have had your hearts been circumcised, a circumcision performed by Jesus. So I think we, we would right, be right to think circumcision of the flesh in the Old Testament pointed, as a pointer, as a shadow, the language Paul will use later in Colossians 2, of a deeper circumcision of the heart performed by Jesus in the new covenant. And if you are a Christian today, I tell you, according to Colossians 2 verse 11, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. 
So Christ has done this in us. To be uncircumcised um, would be to be spiritually dead. Now, no, no, drop, drop down to verse 13. I want you to see the, the kind of the parallels that Paul's drawing here between being dead and being uncircumcised for. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And so I think we could probably understand these two metaphors describing the same reality. That is, to be uncircumcised is to be spiritually dead. Not, not biologically dead, certainly, but dead to the things of God, um, de dead to the gospel. And this is what we were. This is what he says there in verse 13. You were dead in your trespasses. You were dead to God and all things spiritual. It's a... Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who tells the story of Wilbur, Wilbur, uh, William Wilberforce, that great uh, member of parliament who led to the abolition of slavery in, in Great Britain. He, he was a, if you know anything about Wilberforce, he was, above all things, a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He had a dear friend named William Pitt, who happened to be the prime minister of England, who was, at best, a nominal Christian. And Wilberforce had this great desire for Pitt to come to faith and salvation in Christ. And, and this great preacher named Richard Cecil was preaching there in London. And Wilberforce kept trying to get Pitt to go hear Cecil preach. And, and Pitt said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to. But Wilberforce just wore him down. And so finally he says, fine, I'll go hear this man preach. Well, they went and, and listened to the sermon. And Cecil, according to Wilberforce, was at his best. I mean, he was powerful and provocative. He was clear and convicting. And Wilberforce was utterly ecstatic thinking he couldn't have imagined a better sermon for William Pitt to sit and listen to and to sit under. Well, after the service, as they were leaving, uh, Pitt turned to his friend and said, you know, William, I have not the slightest idea of what that man was talking about. He is dead in his trespasses. One man heard the glorious gospel, the glorious truth, was moved in his spirit. The other just heard noise. He was bored by the majesty of God. This is what Paul is saying we were. We were dead in our trespasses, the uncircumcision of our flesh. This is why the, uh, a religion of rules and laws will never work. Dead men don't keep law. They don't keep rules, right? And so if you have a religion that, that fundamentally comes and says, okay, do this and do that thing over there, well, it's never going to work. Try a little better. That will never work. It's Alistair Begg who says that it's like a, a train on its rails with no fire in the engine. We, may, we might get behind the train and try to give it a shove, if you will, but we're not going to get very far. right? You put fire in the engine, you're going to fly down the rails. Right? Or to use Paul's metaphor, we have been circumcised. In fact, he tells us to what effect, if you look back at verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and here it is, by putting off the body of flesh. Body of the flesh. What, is, what does he mean by the body of the flesh? Well, he simply means our propensity to sin. Our sinful nature. In fact, some translations put it that way, by putting off our sinful nature. And so what we learn... It, putting all this together is that we once lived under the dominion and authority of our sinful flesh, of our sinful hearts. That sin controlled our thoughts, sin controlled our desires, sin controlled our actions. And yet when we were converted to Christ, when we, we were circumcised by Christ, he doesn't cut off our physical foreskin, but he cuts off our fleshly nature, the body 
of flesh. And that old, rebellious, self-reliant, unbelieving you is cut off. It's severed. And you say, well, wait a second, Pastor. I still struggle with sin. Well, of course you do. But the point is you actually struggle with sin. Now, I tell you frequently, you know what I did before I became a Christian? Whatever I wanted. Whatever I wanted. I wanted to lie, I wanted to steal, I wanted to cheat. I did it. I did whatever I wanted. In other words, I had no struggle. Unbelievers largely do not struggle with sin against God. They give themselves to it. Now what we find ourselves living in a Romans 7 kind of world, if you will, that we often to our dismay do what we do not want to do. I still sin, but I don't want to do it. I'm continually struggling with it. And if you struggle with sin today, my Christian brother and sister, you ought to praise God for the struggle. That is the work of God in your lives, that Christians can now struggle against sin because sin no longer has dominion over you. I mean, you, you ever, I mean, I don't know if you're anything like me, uh, but do you ever think about God when you're sinning? Right? Do you ever, like, while you're sinning, your thoughts go to God. That's, it's an odd thing to do because it makes sin much less enjoyable. Right? Why would anyone want to think about God the moment they're sinning against God? And yet, I think we constantly do. We're filled with self-pity. Right? Self-pity would be a lot more fun if we didn't hear God saying in our hearts that he has all things in his control. Why aren't you trusting me? Bitterness would be a lot more fun, wouldn't it? A lot more satisfying, at least, if our mind didn't keep reminding us of how we've been forgiven by God, and therefore we should forgive others. Or our boasting would be a lot more gratifying if, if we didn't have the thoughts remembering what we were before Christ came into our life. Materialistic fantasies would be a lot more enjoyable if we weren't constantly reminded of Jesus' words in Luke 9, if anyone's to come after me, he must deny himself. Right? We were once imprisoned in the flesh. You, 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 you did what the flesh commanded, the Bible says. You've been free from that. He breaks the power of canceled Sin, he sets the prisoners free. And though sin remains, it no longer reigns in our lives. The power has been broken over us. And Paul will go on to elaborate what this circumcision looks like in verse 12 when he says that we've been buried with Christ and raised with Christ, changing the metaphor. So considerably, secondly, that we've been buried with Christ. For he says here in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. We have been buried with him because, precisely because, we have died with him. Burial is a proof of what? What do you do with someone who, uh, you, bury, you only bury dead people, right? And so uh, the fact that we talk about the burial of Christ, or we've been buried with him, is a reference to the fact that we have died. It's, I find that interesting in, in uh, creeds and scriptures. It not only emphasizes the death of Christ, but it actually emphasizes his burial. And so we uh, occasionally recite the Apostles' Creed, in which we announce, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was crucified, died, and was buried. What does buried add? If we just, we just said he died, why do we add that he was buried? Or Paul, for himself, in 1 Corinthians 15, will say, for I delivered to you what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture, and that he was 
buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Why does Paul add the fact that, just said he died, why does he add the fact that he's been buried? Well, this burial is a proof, it's evidence of the reality of his death. And so when Paul says here in verse 12 that we've been buried with Christ, we understand that we have truly indeed been united with Christ in his death. That is, when Christ died, Christian, you died with him. It's another way, I think, a very similar way to think about the cutting off the flesh. The metaphor's changed now. The old man has died. Paul will say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Romans 6, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin for when we died with Christ, there's that language again, we are set free from the power of sin. When I was converted to Jesus, when you were converted to Christ, that old, sinful, self-focused you died with Jesus. You're dead to sin and now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because you didn't just die, he raised you, as you see thirdly, that we've been raised with Christ. For, to which Paul now returns here in verse 12, when he says, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised uh, him from the dead. So you've been raised with Christ. That is, you are, you are united with Christ's resurrection. Now, I want you to be very clear here. What Paul is referring to in verse 12 is not some future resurrection. Now, Christians hope in a future bodily resurrection. That's our great ambition, our great hope. But the resurre resurrected life in which he's referring to here is not one we will experience, but one we are currently experiencing. You have been already raised with Christ. Again, he mentions this here in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You have been made alive. So you might say, well, how do I become a believer? How did I become a believer? Well, God raised you from the dead. You were spiritually dead, you were unresponsive, you found nothing compelling in Christ. And then one night, perhaps, for you, maybe talking to mom and dad, maybe around a campfire, maybe with a book in your lap, or one day listening to a sermon, something happened in you, and you became alive. Now, for some people, that takes, that takes place instantaneously. I think it took place just in a, a, a precise moment in my own life. But for some people, I think this, this regeneration, this being made alive, it actually takes days, if not months or, or years. But regardless of how quickly it comes, it will come if you are a Christian. This transform transformation has taken place in your life. I think it usually becomes, uh, comes when you become aware of your sin. Your, your conscience is afflicted. You see that your transgression is not simply bad for you or an affront to mom or dad or whatever it might be, but it is actually against a good and gracious God, and you become broken for it. The prophet Ezekiel foretold that you shall remember your ways and all your evil deeds which you have defiled yourself, and you shall loathe yourself for all the evil you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways. I mean, that happens in us. Most of our life, there is no conviction of sin. And then all of a sudden, we're loaded with its weight. We're like a Bunyan's pilgrim who has this burden upon his back. Right? We feel the burden of sin. If you've never felt the burden of sin against a gracious God, if you've never been convicted of sin in, in, in your life, that's a sign of spiritual death. That's a sign of the uncircumcision of the flesh. 
Those of us who have been made alive, we felt that. We've experienced that. And soon thereafter, we became alive to the majesty of Jesus. And, and the gospel radiated with its glorious truth. This is what it means to become a Christian. This is what God does in our life. That you who were dead have been made alive. This is how you became a Christian. So to be, in other words, to become a Christian is not like choosing to become a Republican or a Democrat. Like you, you look at their arguments, you look at their platforms, you say, I like this one, I don't like this one, I think I'll choose this one over here. And that's not what it's like to become a Christian. To become a Christian is far more, as John Piper puts it, it's like a, a caterpillar be, becoming a butterfly. And, and once, once you have a, a butterfly and you command the butterfly to fly, you say, butterfly, now go fly. Does the butterfly say, no, I don't want to fly? The butterfly filled with guilt over the idea of flying or fear. No, what, what does the butterfly do? It flies, right? The butterfly does what's according to its nature. It's made to fly and it flies. It has this new nature of, of being a flyer that it did not have as a caterpillar. But you come to a caterpillar and you command the caterpillar to fly. What does the caterpillar do? Well, it might be filled with despair and saying, I can't fly. There's no hope for me. It might say, I am flying. I mean, look how high I'm up off the ground. Right? Or it can cry out, I cannot fly. I cannot do what you command. Change me. Make me into a butterfly. I know this metaphor breaks down at some points, but I think it's helpful because this is what God has done. You, you at one time, listen, you were a caterpillar. You were an ugly, hairy worm, okay? You were unwilling and unable to do what God commanded. And he has made you into a butterfly, radiant and beautiful and born again. And there is now within you a new ability to do what God has asked. He creates within us new affections, new loves for God's laws, new love and delight in Christ, a desire to please him. We've been transformed. We've been made alive. We've been born again. It's John Piper who says, the commands of God are not oppressive, but are the beckoning of a beautiful spring day and the aroma of a flower-filled garden. By the grace of God, we have been transformed into butterflies. The life of God has come to dwell in our soul, and it is now our nature to be up and flying for the glory of our Savior. Now, I wonder if, if any of this sounds foreign to you, not the metaphor so much, but the desire to actually serve God because we've been transformed. And you, you, you may come here today and you may, you may have thought, well, I thought a Christian was something, someone who was just simply religious. Or a Christian was someone who simply held to a set of theological beliefs. Or, or a Christian was, was someone who walked an aisle or raised a hand or whatever it might be. I hope you understand, no, to be a Christian is to be made alive by Jesus. And, and, and you might be here this morning, you might not be a Christian, and you might, you might be thinking, this is the strangest sermon I've ever heard. Why in the world are we talking about butterflies? Why are we talking about this transformation? You may be like William Pitt and think, I have absolutely no idea what that man is talking about. Well, that just may be God revealing to you that you, you are in need of salvation, in need of a relationship with him, that you indeed at this point are dead in your trespasses. That you would, in response to that, cry out to God, I need to be changed. Will you transform me? 
knowing that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin and rose from the dead, will you make me alive? Will you cry out like the, the publican in, in, uh, of Jesus' day, have mercy on me, a sinner? For my Christian brothers and sisters, I want you to understand you have, you have new power in your life. God has put power in your life to follow after him. And he has transformed you. He has changed you. I think there are very few advantages of, being, of converting to Christ later on in life. I was talking to my kids about this last night. It's far better to be raised in a Christian home. It's far, far better to come to faith as a young person. And, and, and those who do so should never aspire for anything different than that. But I will tell you, there is at least one advantage of coming to Christ later in life. And, 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 and it's this. It is the new life in which you are given is stunning. It is startling. And when I came to Christ around age 17, it was startling to me. And it was startling to those around me. It was like I had become a new person because I had. And I had new desires and new thoughts and new ambitions and new habits because God was working in me. What does he say in verse 12? The powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. That power is still in us to help us, to enable us to live this resurrected life. And once we get to Colossians 3, you're going to see what Paul is going to talk about in glorious details, what this resurrected life actually looks like. But just cast your eyes there in verse 12 of chapter 3 when he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What are we to do? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive others. And on he goes. He explains the life in which we are to live. A life in which God enables through this resurrected power. And if any of that is compelling to you, if any of that is your desire, yes, God, I want to be kind and humble and compassionate. Yes, God, I want to forgive others. Yes, God, I, I, I want to seek after meekness and patience. If you have that longing, you ought to praise God today because that is the powerful working of God in your life. If you want to please God today, you ought to praise him simply for that desire. We are to live like this. You remember when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? In John chapter 11, I believe it is. He said, Lazarus, come out. And, and Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, rose and came out. Remember what he was wearing? He was wearing his grave clothes. Remember what Jesus said? He said, take those clothes off him. Why? Because they're no longer fitting for him. The grave, grave clothes no longer match his state. That's true for you, Christian. Right? Take off that sin, Paul will tell us in Colossians 3. It's no longer fitting for us. For a Christian to walk in sin is like a, a, a man who is alive walking around in burial garments. So I ask you this morning, Christian, are you living this new life? Is there something in your life today that clearly demonstrates you have been made alive in Jesus? As William Barclay tells the story of an old Scottish woman who was living in the squalor in her basement in the ma at a massive manor house that she owned. Well, George Matheson, the great George uh, Matheson, came to her church and preached the gospel. And soon thereafter, a friend went by to visit the woman, and she was no longer living in the basement. She was no longer living in squalor. She was living in the main room in, the, in what was now a beautiful, clean, and put-together manor house. He asked her what happened. 
And this woman said, I cannot hear the gospel and go on living in the cellar. And I think so many Christians are living in the cellar of their salvation. They are living in the basement of what God has done for them. That is, they are living at the minimum. And I'm telling you, move up and live the life that Christ has made possible in your life. Why live in, in the tomb when he has given you new life? I wonder if there's areas in which God is revealing to you right now that you know is displeasing to him, is not fitting for the life in which he has given. It's like putting on the grave clothes. And that God would even empower you this very moment to repent and live that life of joy and peace and service which he calls us to. This new life that he has given us is beautifully and powerfully displayed in our baptism. And so we turn to lastly this morning that Paul tells us that we have been buried and raised with Christ in our baptism. Notice there in verse 12, that having been buried with him, and here's the phrase, in baptism. So you know, first of all, that he's reminding the Colossians of their baptism. He takes for granted that they have been baptized, just assumes to, 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 to be an unbaptized Christian is to be like a man who is married but tells his wife, I'm not wearing a ring when I go outside. It would be unheard of. I would not be the type of husband you want. It would be like a soldier who refuses to wear the uniform. Um, so he just assumes they're all baptized. In fact, when Jesus um, was about to ascend to heaven, he gave us, gave us a great commission. He says, listen, all authority has been given to me. That is, I'm the king. I have all authority in heaven and earth. Okay, King Jesus, what should we do? He says, go and make disciples. Okay, how do we do that? You do it in two ways. You baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then you teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's, that's what a disciple is. What's a disciple? A disciple is someone who's been baptized in the triune God and seeks a life of obedience to God. Okay? And it goes in that order, doesn't it? You start with baptism. Baptism comes first because baptism is the sign of the new covenant. So we are in a new covenant. We see this clearly. Uh, and Jesus, uh, at the Last Supper, raises this Blood is a new covenant, right? And we're told this in Hebrews chapter 8 in particular. So we are in a new covenant. Baptism is the sign that we belong to that covenant. Just like circumcision was a sign they belonged to the old covenant. Baptism is what marks out those who are in this covenant. Of course, the question is raised often by many Christians. Uh, if, if that's the case, if baptism is the new sign of being in covenant with God, should we therefore baptize infants of believers just as they circumcised the infants of those in the old covenant. This is often called infant baptism or people refer to it as pedo baptism. Pedo simply being the Greek word for child. So this is the argument. It's, it's pretty simple. It get, can get complicated but just on just the simple argument for it is under the old covenant children born into a covenant family receive the sign of the covenant. Now when a child is born to a new covenant family, shouldn't they also receive the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism? So the Heidelberg Confession, 1563, says they, referring to children of believers, are also by baptism as a sign of the covenant to be engrafted into the Christian church and to be distinguished from the children of unbelievers as was done in the Old Testament by circumcision in the place of which in the New Testament baptism is appointed. Okay? Now hundreds 
of millions of Christians believe you should do that. You should baptize the infants of believers. Presbyterians, uh, Reformed Church, Congregationalists, Methodists, Anglicans, they all believe this. Um, uh, you, you say, what about, what about uh, Roman Catholics and Lutherans? They actually believe something different. They believe that baptism is a converting ordinance, something far different. We can't get into that. But, but many, many Christians, hundreds of millions of Christians, maybe some of you here believe, yes, we should give the sign of the covenant to our children, just as they did in the old covenant. My question for those who take that position, by the way, my conclusion shouldn't surprise any of you. I, I am a Baptist preacher, okay? So I'm not trying to sneak one by you here, okay? Um, okay? The question we need to ask, I think, is a question we need to ask and a text we need to observe. So we're just going to... It's going to take about maybe eight minutes. This shouldn't be too long. Question we need to ask, and when a pastor says eight minutes, uh, don't hold them literally, okay? Um, <laughs> so the question we need to ask, is entrance into the new covenant the same as they entered into the old covenant? Does God gather his people into the new covenant the same way he gathered his people into the old covenant? Now, to become part of the old covenant, how did you, how did you get into that covenant? You were born to a Jewish family. It's simple. That's it. You were born to a Jew's family. You were in the covenant. You were a descendant of Abraham. You were in the covenant. We've seen in this passage, right, and many, many other passages, to become part of the new covenant, it's not simply you're born to him or to her or to me, but you are born again. So the prophets told us of a new covenant that's coming, and they said this is what's unique about the new covenant. Those in the new covenant will have the heart of stone taken out and given a heart of flesh. Those in the new covenant will have the law written on their hearts. Those in the new covenant will have a circumcised heart. Those in the new covenant will know me as the Lord. And so these are all different ways of saying, this is Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 26, and elsewhere, different ways of saying that the new covenant, in the new covenant, God's people will, God's people will know God. They will obey God. They will trust God. How, how can we be sure? Because God will transform them, just as we've seen. Okay. That's unique to the new covenant. That's what makes it new. Under the old covenant, you could be in the covenant, but not keep the covenant. In fact, the vast majority did. They were born in the covenant, but they did not keep the covenant, and you see God continually disciplining for them, even kicking them out of the covenantal land that was theirs by covenant. You can't have it because you're not keeping the covenant. This is what's different. Under the new covenant, every single one in the new covenant will keep the new covenant. That is, they will persevere in faith. How can we be sure? God will ensure it. That's what makes it new. The new covenant people of God come into existence, therefore, in a vastly different way than the old covenant people of God. The old covenant people of God were born into a family regardless of their spiritual state. They, they didn't matter. They were in that covenant. The new covenant people of God are born again. Therefore, we don't give the sign of those who have received physical birth, namely infants and believers, the sign of being in the covenant, but only those who have received spiritual birth. Let me summarize. To baptize the infants of believers because under the old covenant they received that, the sign of that covenant is to fundamentally misunderstand the nature 
of the new covenant. The new covenant people of God are buried with Christ. The new covenant people of God are raised with Christ, for which baptism is a sign. So I want you to look at this text one more time. In fact, if all, if all I had in the Bible was Colossians 2.12, I would be convinced that infant baptism is not a legitimate understanding of baptism. All I need is this verse. Galatians 3.26 and 27 does the same for me. But uh, in fact, it's two words in Colossians uh, 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, okay, in which, now which is a relative pronoun, okay, a pronoun is just a replacement for another noun. So what's the which referring to? It's referring to baptism, okay? In, so we might say, in baptism, you were also raised with him. Now, here's the two words, ready? Through faith. In baptism, you were raised with him through faith. Here's my question. What is the through faith doing there? What's that doing there? Now, to me, this is utterly obvious. This is, this is not theological gymnastics. This is just English. We're just dealing with English, Right? How are we buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Christ in baptism? We are through faith, right? We're united to Christ's death and, and his resurrection through faith, and baptism is a symbol that's happened to us. Infants haven't received that. They haven't placed their faith in him. They have not, infants of believers have not been united to Christ's death and his resurrection because they do not have faith. They don't believe. And so this is, this is the whole symbolism of baptism. It is Christ's burial and resurrection displayed and acted out and proclaimed in your baptism. In fact, there are two passages in the New Testament which says that we have been buried with Christ. It's Colossians 2, Romans 6. In both passages, what says you've been buried with Christ, Paul, out of nowhere, drags baptism into the argument. Because it is baptism which displays those things. We've been buried with Christ in baptism. Romans 6, we are buried with him by baptism into his death. This baptism pictures Christ's death. It's a picture, it's a dramatization, it's, a, it's an analogy, it's an acting out of Christ's death, and, of course, his resurrection. That's why he says here in Colossians 2.12, in him, or excuse me, in baptism, you were raised with Jesus. This is why we, I think, properly immerse in water. What is the best way to dramatize that Christ has been buried and that Christ has been raised, well, we do so by burying those who have been united to that death and resurrection into the water and then being raised out of the water. And I'm sorry, I, sprinkling a little water on the head does not communicate that. It's not what the word means, by the way. Baptizo means to immerse. It means you would baptizo a ship when you wanted to put it in the bottom of a lake. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian convert says, see, there's water, Right? That is a pool of water. What prevents me from being baptized? So he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, and Philip baptized him. He showed that he belonged to Christ, that he was united to Christ's death and resurrection, that he was part of the people of God because he had faith. So the, I'm, I'm ending here. Baptism says something about you and something about Jesus. Baptism gets its meaning and its importance from the death of Jesus for your sins. And the triumph of Jesus over, the, over death on your behalf. This is, it proclaims that. That's, by the way, if you're not a Christian, that's the gospel. 
We say, what's the heart of Christianity? That Christ died in your place for your sins, and then three days later, he was raised bodily from the dead to conquer the grave for you. And if you trust in him, turn your life over to him in faith, that you will be saved. You'll be united to him, as we've seen. So what, this baptism, therefore, say, well, just, he's just a Baptist preacher. He's getting all bent out because that's, what he, that's, his, that's his thing, right? I mean, he's got Baptist on the sign outside, okay? Listen, baptism is not just simply a little ritual. It's not like it's just a church tradition. It is fundamentally, in Christ's mind, how you become a disciple. About 24 years ago, after I exchanged my vows with my beloved wife, I took a ring and I placed it upon her finger and I said, with this ring, I thee wed. That was not meaningless. That was my declaration and hers to mine that we belong together until God separates us from death. Baptism is a declaration that I belong to Christ. It's how Christ has told us to do it, and it shows that we believe Christ died for us and rose from us, and massive truths are being proclaimed in the baptismal waters. It's not a small thing. It's glorious. It's a glorious declaration of the gospel that the Son of God has died for me and that he rose for me to give me new life, and I have been united to him. That old man has died. Put him in the ground. Put him in the water. Get him out of here. And now I have been raised, as the Bible says, in newness of life. There's a new me now because of what God has done. That's what you confess when you are baptized. And my friends, it is glorious. And why Anyone who calls himself a Christian, I say this with kindness in my heart, but I don't understand why anyone who calls himself a Christian would not want to do that is beyond my imagination. I would do it every week if God said it was possible. I think you do it once in your life, but I think it is glorious. Have you been biblically baptized? Maybe some of you have put this off for far too long. Have you declared that that old man died and I have been made alive by Christ and through Christ and for Christ? Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word that teaches us of the work that Jesus has done. We were dead. Every one of us in our sin was dead under the dominion of rebellion against a holy God. And by your grace, you have made us alive. We are alive today and shall be forevermore. May we live that life which you have given us for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.